Let's, uh, let's take a look at the Word of God today. Uh, it was last Sunday that I launched what will be a new series of sermons that will take us through a good portion of the summer. I began exploring the idea that when we proclaim the gospel, our goal is to see every follower of Jesus become fully mature. And those two words, fully mature, are going to be kind of key words for me over the course of the next several weeks. God has placed in every Christian the ability to develop spiritual maturity. The Bible is very clear about that. No one is malformed. No one is unable to grow in their faith. God has given that ability and that gift to every follower of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, it, it requires some effort on our part, but the, the scripture we looked at last week reminds us that that effort is not in our own strength. We effort in the strength that Jesus gives us, not according to our own ability. I mentioned a week ago that I believe the Bible shows us that there are multiple different facets to spiritual maturity. You might say there are parallel tracks going on at the same time. In order to become fully mature, we need to be aware of each one of them. It's the same way in the natural, isn't it? Maturity includes uh, elements of physical maturity. It includes emotional elements. It includes intellectual elements and all sorts of other criteria. It's not just one thing that we're talking about here. A young man can't claim to be fully mature merely because he's grown some stubble on his chin. To be fully mature, he must also have developed emotional maturity, relational maturity, just to name a few. A number of other things could go into that list as well. And so today what I want to do is to zero in, kind of explore just one facet of spiritual maturity that I think the Bible has quite a bit to say about. And I'm going to refer to it as having a mature mind. Today I want to talk about having a mature mind. And specifically what I'm going to talk about today are the dangers of not having a mature mind. Now, what I really mean by that is that spiritual maturity demands that we have knowledge and understanding about what we think and about what we believe. Our minds have to be engaged in order to become spiritually mature. Now, I want to be very clear about what I'm talking about here. I'm not saying that you have to have special knowledge or intellect in order to get saved. Think about it, a baby doesn't need to pass a written test before they're allowed to be born. Babies are just born and, and people are just saved. The young people we just prayed for in our, in our youth group, they're just saved. They don't need to know anything in order to be saved, in order to be initiated into the body of Christ. But just like that baby who's born, didn't need to pass a written test in order to be delivered, right? Didn't need to have any sort of knowledge, didn't need to get an A on the test. Uh, but once it is born, its maturity depends at least in part on its ability to begin learning, its ability to develop a mature mind. And spiritually, it's the same way for us. We didn't need to pass the test to get here. But once we get here, in order to be healthy, in order to be safe, in order to develop and mature the way we were meant to develop and mature, we have to, at least one thing we have to do is develop a mature mind. The Apostle Paul had this to say about developing mature minds, and I'm going to read to you now from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Paul writes this, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up 
until we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature. There's our key word there, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure, not just a little bit of the measure, but the whole measure, becoming fully mature, we might say, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. There's a lot to dissect here. This is a very complicated, involved passage. But essentially what Paul is saying is that God put people into the church. He gives us some of the examples, the evangelists, the the pastors, the teachers, the prophets, the apostles. He's saying God put people in the church, in the community of saints, to teach us well and to help us attain spiritual understanding so that we would all grow to become fully mature. It's part of the reason why the church matters. We don't grow well when we're on our own because God gave us gifts within the body of Christ that would help us grow to full maturity. That's what Paul is talking about here. I want to restate the passage that I just read this way. I believe what Paul is saying is this, the fully mature body of Christ lives in unity. That's what he meant when he was saying we were being built up into a single body. It's not the bodies of Christ, plural. It's we're being built up into the body, the unified body of Christ. The fully mature body of Christ lives in unity. We say, well, how? How do they do that? We live in unity in what we know and in what we believe about Jesus. That's what Paul meant when he said unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. So we live in unity in what we know and believe about Jesus. And why? Why why does that matter? Paul answers in the passage I read. So that we aren't vulnerable to harmful lies. We live in unity in what we know and believe in Jesus so that... None of us is vulnerable to the, he used words like cunning, craftiness, deceitful, scheming. We live in unity so that we aren't vulnerable. Now, when we talk about unity in the church, we aren't talking about everybody having the same taste in music. We aren't talking about everybody having the same thoughts on the latest movie. In this congregation, God knows we aren't talking about everybody having the same favorite football team. Still praying about that though. We aren't, listen to this, because this is for real. We aren't even talking about everybody voting for the same candidate or for the same party. We don't have to all be exactly alike in those regards. Unity in the church has to do with everyone having the same understanding of who Jesus is and how that understanding impacts our lives. That's what we're talking about when we talk about unity. And the reason that that matters is that our failure to actually know Jesus leaves us vulnerable to the lies and the schemes of the devil. Paul gave us this image, infants being tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there. That is not a picture of safety or security. And so here's what it all boils down to. Mature minds know truths about God. Mature minds know truths, 
plural, about God. I, I put an S there in part because it's fun to say truths. Everybody say that. Truths. Mature minds know truths about God, but I, I wanted to be very clear. I'm not merely saying mature minds know the truth about God. I mean, we, the, the truth about God, fine. But mature minds, we know truths. We know a lot about God. We, we understand, mature minds understand his character. They can clearly and confidently articulate the essential truths about who he is. Let me give you a kind of an idea of what that looks like. The day I was born, July 22nd, 1975. What a glorious day it was. There it was. Yeah, I share a birthday with with Cindy Rogers and with Ash Gianni. July 22nd is the official birthday of Hobson Road Community Church. July 22nd, 1975, I was born. Um, I don't remember that day. Uh, I didn't think to take notes. Um, But I can tell you this, I can assure you of this, that the day I was born, from the first moment of my life, I loved my parents. I loved my parents. Didn't know their names. Didn't actually know for sure what they looked like. Um, But I loved my parents from the moment I was born. I dare say you did as well. Now, fast forward a few years, when I was a toddler, I knew what my parents looked like. By that time, I had figured that out. I knew what they looked like. It freaked me out a little bit when my dad shaved his mustache, but I still knew it was him. I knew their names by that point. I knew how they related to me, but I didn't know too much more than that because that's really all I needed to know. That's all that mattered at that point in development. But a few years after that, by the time I was in grade school, I knew their names. I knew their jobs. I knew a lot about what they liked and about what they disliked. I was beginning, at least, to understand their personalities. But here I am many years after that. For those of you that haven't done the math yet, I'm 47 years old. And I can tell you with confidence that today Today, today, I know my parents better than I've ever known them before. I know them better than most anybody who has ever lived has known them. I know things, I know truths about my parents. Love you, Mom. I know truths about my parents that their casual friends don't. I know a few things about them that even their own families never knew about them. But I didn't know that on the first day. It's taken time. It's taken relationship. It's taken the maturity of my own mind in order to learn those things. When I was an infant and I didn't know them well, it wasn't because they were hiding those things from me. It wasn't because they were lying to me. It's just that I needed the time to develop a more mature mind in order to know truths about my parents. And I would submit to you that it's the very same thing in our relationship with God. If you're a brand new believer today, here's the truth. You just don't know God very well yet, but that's okay. That's okay. You haven't had the time to develop a mature mind, but it's a process you need to be engaged in. God's not hiding that from you any more than my parents were trying to hide from me when I was a toddler. You can love God on day one. You should love God on day one, just like you and I and everybody else loved their parents on day one. But it's going to take time. 
It's going to take relationship and it's going to take a mature mind to really actually know him. There's a word that really, I think, describes what I'm talking about here. And the word is theology. You won't find the word theology in the Bible, but it's a very, very important word for us to know and to understand. You may have heard the word theology. You may have heard someone described as a theologian. And maybe when you hear the word theologian, you imagine an old, nerdy-looking professor sitting in an office with a million books, and he's writing journal articles about, about the religious ceremonies practiced by the ancient Sumerians. It's, Something like that. Is, is that what the word theologian conjures up in your minds? I would submit to you that that's an incomplete understanding of what a theologian is. That's an incomplete understanding of the word theology. On the screens here, you see a better one. The word theology breaks down. It's a combination of two old Greek words, theos and logos. That's where we get theology. And those words mean God and word. Theos is God and Logos is word. So theology, at its essence then, is just the words we use to talk about God. Theology is words about God. It's the things we say about God. And so in a sense then, a theologian is anybody who has something to say about God. Anytime you use words about God, you're being a theologian. Anytime you say something about God, you're discussing theology. Anytime you post something about God on your Facebook page, you're posting about theology. Anytime you read something about God or look something up in the Bible or even just watch an episode of The Chosen, you're learning theology. Anytime you have a conversation with someone about God, you're doing the work of discerning theology. Anytime we just sit and silently wonder about God, we're thinking theologically. That's what we're doing here. All of these things and a million other things are everyday examples of theology. But here's the catch. They're always examples of good theology. (laughs) You know, you can turn on the TV and hear all kinds of theology. It's just not always very good theology. You can open a book and read all kinds of theology. It's just not always very good theology. You can go to Google and research all kinds of theology. It's just not. You can hear me preach. and Well, no, I'm going to let you guys decide about that. There's a lot more theology going on in the world around you than I think most of us realize. When we use words about God, we are doing the work of theology. And I would submit to you that there's a lot more examples of bad theology than there are examples of good theology. We need to have mature theology that comes from a spiritually mature mind. Can I give you an example well, I'm, I'm going to give you an example, but you're going to think I'm, I'm an angry old man. And you already know I'm 47. And you're going to think I'm a, just a curmudgeon. I don't know. Look it up in a theology dictionary. It's, but it's timely. It, it's timely because this time of year, if you want to hear some bad theology, this time of year in particular you usually don't have to go any further than a graduation ceremony. 
I'm going to one this afternoon. Jessica's graduating from high school this afternoon and we're gonna hear the speakers speak. Congratulations, Jessica, right? Right? You don't have to go any further than a graduation ceremony to hear bad theology. And if you aren't going to any graduation ceremonies this year, then just go to Hallmark and read the graduation cards because they are loaded with bad theology. Let me tell you what I mean. What do we say to graduates? We say things like this. With drive and determination, you can accomplish anything. We say, follow your heart and your dreams, graduate, and you'll always find fulfillment. We say, seek joy and happiness above all else, and success is sure to follow. (sighs) That's bad theology, folks. That's the kind of advice that the world gives, and and I'm not mad about it. That's okay, because graduation isn't really supposed to be about theology, at least for the world it's not. But when we've submitted our lives to Jesus, Jeffrey Cornelius is graduating from from high school, right? He just did. did? Jeffrey's got a life submitted to Jesus. So Jeffrey knows better than to read the Hallmark cards and think that's how he's going to plan his life out. Because when we've submitted our lives to Jesus, we have to also submit our will to his word. And that requires having a mind mature enough to know that the greeting card industry doesn't line up with what God has actually said he wants for us. Those might be nice ideas in the Hallmark aisle. Those might be nice sentiments that your district superintendent or your valedictorian said from the microphone. They might be nice wishes, but they are not good, mature theos logos. Those aren't good, mature words about God. It's bad theology. It's theology, but it's bad theology. It's immature theology. The goal of the spiritual mature Christian is to develop a robust theology that is based upon what the Bible says. The Bible, the word of God, is our all-sufficient rule for faith and practice. And so when we do that together, when we develop a good, robust, biblical theology, we develop mature minds, we reach that unity that Paul is talking about. Of course, you guys know this, not every Christian, not all Christians agree on every single thing. And some of you are already, you know, you're going to catch me on Oh, very nice, but we don't all agree. You know, I know that. Because if you've read your Bible, you know that even Paul, who wrote those words, even Paul had disagreements with some of his fellow apostles. They were working in all the strength that God had given them to apply the truths of Scripture to a world that was rapidly changing in front of them, just like us, right? And they didn't always agree on precisely how that should work out. But here's the thing, where the Bible is clear and explicit, the fundamentals of Christian theology are straightforward. And spiritual maturity requires a mature mind that understands these things. Let me give you an example pulled just from this week. This week, the, uh, the, the church world, the Christian world, said a final goodbye to a great pastor and theologian by the name of Tim Keller. Tim Keller has impacted the church for more than 50 years of ministry. Keller is from a Presbyterian background. Now, the Presbyterians have some some different doctrinal beliefs than the folks like me in the Assemblies of God. 
And so if I had ever had the opportunity to meet Tim Keller and sit down and talk shop with him, he and I would, would not agree on a great variety of theological issues. We would not agree on the proper role of women in ministry. We would not agree on, on the issue of free will in choosing Jesus. We would not agree on some of the doctrines surrounding the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing about Tim Keller. When it comes to the central truths of Christianity, he and I and millions of others share the same theology. We share the same faith. We will be in heaven together. Together we embody the words that we read earlier, the unity in the faith, knowledge of the Son of God. We have worked to have mature minds. I'm saying we all of us, not just me and Tim, we all of us, we have worked to have mature minds filled with good theology that knows truths about God. Can I talk about football instead? Are we going to stop you? No, probably not. You know, one of the things that I love so much about sports is you guys know my, you know, my favorite team is the Bears. And you'll find another Bears fan and you would think that Bears fans would get along with Bears fans. But you'd be wrong because we all have different opinions on what they should have done on this play and how this should have worked out. But here's the thing. All Bears fans have a unity in the knowledge that the Bears are the greatest football team in the history of the civilization. We know that. We understand that, right? And, you know, that, that's just kind of how that goes. Let me tell you some other things, some other truths about the Bears that we know. We know that the Bears did not have a successful season last year. That's straightforward. They won only three games. They, you know... Still the greatest team in the history of the civilization, but um, for 40 yeah, you know, well, you know, different strokes, different folks. That's how it goes. They did not have a so we agree on these teams. But you put me down in front of the big screen TV on game day with a couple of the Bears fans, and I'm going to say, you know, the problem is, is that they didn't. The reason they lost all those games last year. They didn't get Justin Fields enough help. You know, we got this young quarterback, but he didn't have an offensive line. He had no weapons at receiver. If they had done a better job of giving him some tools, they would have been a better team. They need to invest in the offense. And Bears fans sitting next to me is going to look at me and go, are you crazy? Man, Fields should, he, you know, it was his second year. He should know enough. The reason they lost last year is that run defense couldn't stop anybody. They were gashed on the run every play. And they're not going anywhere until they address the run defense. And the third Bears fan would come in and say, you guys are both morons, and let me explain to you why. This coaching staff doesn't know what they're doing. Never coached a team before. You can put all the players on the field you want, but if the coaches don't know how to train and don't know how to call the right plays, the team's only going to win three games, and that's the problem. And the three of us would have arguments about this, and we would eat nachos, and we would punch each other, and we'd be, you're an idiot, you're more, you don't believe this. And then kickoff would come, and we'd all be going, go Bears! And you all were right. We were all right, by the guy. I think it's really a mixture of all of those things. I think the church is that way sometimes. If you didn't know football and you walked into that conversation between me and my two Bears fans buddies, you would say, man, do you guys agree on anything? And we would say, yeah, we do. We agree that the Chicago Bears are the greatest team in the history of the civilization. They didn't have a very good year last year. We agree on the essentials of the faith. And we're just having fun working out in some of the nuances together. 
I see a lot of that going on in the church, and I think mature minds understand the difference. We have to be united in the faith, unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And here's why that's important. Immature theology can be dangerous. Immature theology can be dangerous. A week ago, I, I gave you the word admonish from the, the passage of scripture we read. Sometimes good teachers need to admonish the listener and to warn them. And today's gonna be a warning. It's gonna be a warning about immature theology. And so I tell you this, immature theology can be dangerous. Do you remember how Paul, in the passage we read this morning, how he described the purveyors of immature theology? It was in verse 14. He said, they're blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. That's the picture of what immature theology will do. Bad theology, immature theology can hurt you or it can cause you to hurt others. Theology is a powerful tool. It's a powerful force. And we, in our culture, we demand maturity from people before we entrust them with powerful tools. We demand some level of expertise. We just don't hand out driver's license to six-year-olds because a car is a powerful tool, powerful force. We demand a level of maturity. We don't hand out guns and weapons to people who haven't been properly trained for them. We don't just give prescription medication to anybody who wants one. There has to be a level of maturity before you are entrusted with these powerful, powerful tools. Because immaturity can lead to destruction and immature theology can likewise be dangerous. I'm going to give you an example right from the Bible. Here's a story from the Old Testament. It's 2 Samuel 6, though I'm not going to read it word for word. Far before 2 Samuel 6, back in the days of Moses, you would learn how the Israelites built the Ark of the Covenant. If you've seen the first Indiana Jones movie, you know all about this because there's great theology there. The Israelites built the Ark of the Covenant. It was a gold-covered box about five feet long, and it carried some of their most sacred artifacts. The Ark was meant to be placed in the Israelites' house of worship, what they called the tabernacle. And the power and the presence of God accompanied the Ark in very tangible ways. And when the Israelites realized this, just like the bad guys in Indiana Jones, they began to carry the ark around with them as they traveled. They would even bring the ark with them into battle as kind of a, a good luck charm. But it didn't work because that's not what the ark was meant for. The ark actually got captured by their enemies. The ark changed hands a number of times throughout history. And hundreds of years later, now getting to 2 Samuel chapter 6, when David became the king, David made a plan to bring the ark back to the tabernacle where it should be. The ark had been just out in the countryside for, for quite some time, and David said, that's not right. We need to bring the ark back into the tabernacle where it should be. And so David turned this into a huge event. He had a cart built to transport the ark, and he affixed the cart to a team of oxen so that they could pull it all the way home. He invited high-ranking officials to attend this procession, make a parade out of it. He hired a band to play music the entire time that the ark was being transported and the Bible says 30,000 people showed up along the parade route just to watch the ark come home. 
Here's the problem. The Israelites had forgotten. They had forgotten that the ark wasn't merely a piece of furniture. They had forgotten that the ark wasn't merely an object of national pride. They had forgotten that the ark was a sacred object that tangibly and powerfully manifested the holiness of God. And they also forgot that God had clearly told them, when you need to move the ark, here's exactly how you're supposed to do it. He had told them how to move the ark. It wasn't ever supposed to be on a cart. It was supposed to be carried by hand. There was supposed to be a team of specially trained priests who would insert gold-covered rods through the rings on the side of the ark, and they would carry it on their shoulders like one was carrying a litter for a king. In short, David and the Israelites had bad ark theology. They didn't know the truth about the ark and how it was supposed to work. And so even though their intentions were good, even though the idea, hey, let's bring the ark back home and put it where it's supposed to be, even though that sounded like a good idea and their intentions were good, their theology was bad. Anyhow, somewhere along the parade route, the oxen stumbled and the cart kind of shuddered for a moment. Fortunately for us, somebody snapped a photo of it with their iPhone and posted it on their Instagram. And so we have access to that today. You see it on the screen. Say, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. It's a good follow. And so as, as the cart shudders and, and, and the ark kind of trembles for a moment, instinctively, one of the men guarding it, walking alongside, a man by the name of Uzzah, reached up to steady the ark. And as he did so, the power of God overwhelmed him and he was struck dead. This is one of those Bible stories that we tend to turn our noses up at because we don't like what it has to say. Because it sounds like God killed a man for trying to protect the ark from falling on the ground. And that doesn't sound right to us. We, we, don't, we don't want to think that that's what God did. Now, time today, this isn't the passage I came here to preach. Time won't allow me to get into all the nitty-gritty and all the details. But suffice to say that that's not actually what's going on here. The man who grabbed the ark, Uzzah, he wasn't being punished. He didn't die because he was being punished by God. But what did happen? He was living out the very real consequences of not knowing how God works. He was living out the very real consequences of having bad ark theology. He was like an inexperienced electrician who just grabbed the wrong wire. I've done that. What's going on in this story is that a group of people who loved God, but thought they understood him, didn't actually pay close attention to his words. They had an immature theology. And as we've said, immature theology can be dangerous. It was for us. And the reason it can be dangerous is because it puts God in the wrong place. Immature theology puts God in the wrong place. Part of the problem in the story of the ark is that the ark was in the wrong place. Instead of being in the tabernacle, it was out in the countryside. Then instead of being on the shoulders of the priests, it was in a cart behind some oxen. It was in the wrong place. And most of the immature theology that I hear today likewise puts God in the wrong place. It places my desires, my comfort, my interests ahead of God's will. It puts my thoughts, my wisdom, or my perspective ahead of what God has clearly said. 
Like the Israelites with the ark, it turns Jesus into a good luck charm that I hope keeps me out of trouble. But it ignores his role as Lord over my life. That's what immature theology does. It puts God in the wrong place. And this is why we heard Paul say this, as we develop mature minds, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. He's not the foot. He's not the elbow. He's not the shoulder. He's not the leg. He's not anything else. It's him who is the head. That is Christ. He's in the right spot. When I was born, loving my parents, apparently, I was born with uh, herniated intestines and they caused my belly button to protrude a couple of inches. So I, I, you know, you have an innie or an outie. I had like an outie, you know what I'm saying? Like my belly button stuck out quite a bit because of this hernia, uh, hernia. And so a few months after birth, it required surgery to repair the hernia, put all my intestines back in their proper place. Without that surgery, if I had not had that surgery, my growing body would have strangulated those herniated intestines. That would have caused great injury. It would have caused infection. It could potentially have even caused death. Why? Because I didn't have the right parts in the right places. Growing bodies need to have all their parts in the right place. And if they don't, they're risking injury or death. And that is true of the body of Christ. The body of Christ needs to have all the right parts in all the right places. And if they don't, they risk injury or death. Good theology puts Jesus in the right place. It puts him, as Paul has just told us, at the head of all things. He is in charge. He is sovereign. Jesus is Lord and I am not. Are you encouraged? (laughs) Well, I didn't come to encourage you today. I came to admonish you. Because as we said last week, sometimes that's what the body of Christ needs. Now, I didn't come to admonish you specifically because you've been ticking off But I think the teaching that the church needs, according to the scripture we read last week, includes warning. It includes dealing honestly with the dangers. Look, this is not just just a club that we attend on Sunday mornings so that we can feel better about ourselves and grill bratwurst and play softball. I mean, that's going to be a lot of fun, though, isn't it? That's going to be good. good. Yeah, we we like that. But it's more than that. It's more than that. This is life or death that we're dealing here. And we can't show up every single week and pat each other on the back and pretend that it's not. We have to deal honestly with the seriousness of the word of God. We have to deal honestly with the implications of of what our faith and what our own spiritual maturity looks like. And can I tell you this? Come back next week, because next week I am going to encourage you. But today, today I need to tell you this. Theological understanding is at an all-time low in the United States. At an all-time low. People in generations past who, you know, the graduation rate and, and, and uh, different measurements of, of academia were lower then. 
but theological understanding was so much sharper in so many different ways. A year ago, uh, in 2022, uh, Ligonier Ministries uh, released uh, their State of Theology survey. This is a, an important survey that's done every few years. Uh, and in 2022, we got the last version of this. And it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. Um, they surveyed Americans of all shapes and sizes, but amongst those who self-identified as being evangelical Christians, now that, that word evangelical has all these political connotations, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about evangelicals. We're talking about the theology of evangelical Christianity, which believes that Jesus is the Son of God and is the only means by salvation. The Bible is the inspired word of God. So amongst people who self-identify, say, yeah, those are my beliefs. That, that's what I believe. Here's what the survey found out. 73% of those folks in America agree that Jesus was the first being created by God. That God created Jesus. Spoiler alert, that's bad. <laughs> that's really bad. 58% of those folks in America believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That's not Christian theology. That's universal theology. 55%, so still more than half, believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, but not actually a personal being. That's not biblical theology, Don. That's Star Wars. We could go on. We could go on and on and on. Pastors across the country read the results of this survey and we all were like, well, I, I should probably just quit because <laughs> clearly we're not doing any good here, right? This was an incredibly discouraging assessment of where the church in America is. The study reveals that the church in America is suffering from a terrifying lack of mature minds. And why does that matter? Because that means we're right where the devil wants us. That's a really, really dangerous space for us to be. Later on in his life, the Apostle Paul, who I've quoted so many times already, wrote to his protege, Timothy, and he said this, hey, you need to do a good job of preaching the word clearly. I paraphrase, but this is why. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Folks, I think we've reached that point. Amen. I think we've reached that point. And so what do we do? We, we ask the Holy Spirit to give us teachers, to give us pastors, to give us prophetic voices in our gathering, to give us apostles, to give us evangelists who will admonish us, who will stand up and say, time out, folks. We need to take a better look at what the word of God actually says. Because without that, this is just about rot roast. Right? Without that, this is just about rot roast and softball. And that's a dangerous place for us to be. And so the church, I think, does well in this day and age to say, we need to know what God's word says. We need to know what God's word 
says our very existence, our very lives spiritually depend upon knowing what God's word says. This matters. There's a blessing in that. There's a, there's a tremendous blessing in that. And if you, if, if you come next week, I'll tell you about the blessing. I'll tell you the good news, the other side of this coin. But today we needed to hear, we needed to hear the scary news. We needed to hear the bad theology. It isn't just bad theology. It's just not another way of looking at things. No, bad theology is dangerous. And the church is in a dangerous, dangerous place. I have one more thing to say, and then I'll let you go. If you came here today and you walk out thinking that what I said today is that you don't know your Bible very well, and so the devil's going to get you, and Pastor Dan's pretty angry at me about it. If that's what you heard me say, then I misspoke. Let me try and correct that. As individuals in this body of Christ, we have babies, we have toddlers, we have adolescents, and we have some seasoned saints, don't we? Right? And we are all at different places in that journey. When I was a little baby, I didn't know my parents very well. I didn't know very many truths about them. That's okay. Nobody got mad, about, uh, mad at me about it. I was just being a baby. If you're a baby in your spiritual walk, that's okay. You are in the right place. You are in the right place. Nobody here is mad at you. Nobody here thinks less of you. Because every season saint in the room... <laughs> We used to have some bad theology, let me tell you. But if you've been that spiritual babe for a year, or two years, or five, or 10, or 20, well then maybe it's time to recognize there's more, there's more. God has more for me than this. I could grow. I could develop a mature mind. That's what the Holy Spirit has for me. That's what God wants for me. I'm going to grab hold of it today. Because I'm tired. I'm tired of being batted around in the waves, going here and there in the storms. I'm tired of being gullible. I'm tired of believing everything I read and everything I see. I'm tired of not knowing what the Bible says. I'm tired of asking all the questions and never knowing for sure where the answers are going to come from. I'm tired of it, and I don't think that's right. Guess what? God says, you're right. That's not right. And so press in to the family that God has given you. Learn from their wisdom. Learn with them as we together discern the word of God, growing in the unity of faith, as we put Christ in his rightful spot at the head of all things where he belongs. Fair? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the promise of your word, which even when the pastor is trying to warn and admonish, always comes out with a word of hope. It always comes out with a word of hope because this, this crisis where we see the church in our nation and in our world, this crisis point, it need not be. It need not be. And so, Lord, help us to have mature minds. Help us to think and discern theologically about things. Help us not to fall temptation into the temptation of just saying, well, things are the way I see them. But Lord, let us stand.
upon the foundation of your word. Lord, I see a community of great theologians. I see a church filled with great uh, theos logos, great conversations, great discussions, great thoughts about God, about you, Lord, about who you are and how you impact our lives. Would you release that gift upon us? Would you encourage us to grow and to develop and to change? Would you help us along the way? We pray it's in Jesus' name. And everybody says, Amen. Amen.